Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Susie Ferguson. I'm here in New York City today with Jennifer Manukian, who has a master's degree from the, the Department of Middle Eastern, South Asian, and African Studies at Columbia University. And today we're going to talk about Jennifer's newly published translation of a memoir called The Gardens of Selihdar by a woman named Debel Yesayan, who was a major female Armenian intellectual in late 19th and early 20th century Constantinople, or today's Istanbul. So Jennifer, welcome to the podcast. We're happy to have you. Thanks for having me, Susie. I was going to start out by asking you to situate us in a larger moment. The preface to the memoir positions Yesayan's life and work in this moment of Armenian Renaissance of the late 19th and early 20th century. And as a historian of the Arab world, I'm familiar with a sort of similar phenomenon, which is centered around the cities of Beirut and Cairo, where there's a proliferation of new periodicals and journals, a new generation of writers, a broad print culture, and experiments in a new vernacular where people are trying to write in a language that's going to be accessible, if not to the masses, then to the literate masses, right? So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about the Armenian case. What is this Armenian Renaissance? Who are its protagonists and what kinds of issues come up in their debates? And then maybe if you could just speculate about how this is sort of specific to an Armenian context or community and how it's maybe linked to larger trends that are happening across various linguistic and geographical areas in the empire. Sure. So Yesayan was born in 1878. And this is a really exciting time, like you said, not only in Armenian history, but in Ottoman history more generally. So since the 1840s, since the beginning of the Tanzimat period, there was a mass influx of Armenians who are going to Europe to study. So it was mostly men going from the cities, Constantinople mostly, but also Smyrna or Izmir, going to France, going to Italy, sometimes going to the United Kingdom to study and then returning and implementing what they learned in the European context into Armenian society. So with this influx of knowledge, you also get an influx of new ideas. And slowly but surely, there are new schools that are founded, a new vernacular takes root, and you get this flurry of educational activity, you get a flurry of intellectual activity, and it revolutionizes the society. So let's talk first about the, um, let's talk about the vernacular, because I think that's the best place to start. In the very beginning, education was dominated mostly by the clergy. So the literate class, the educated class, were mostly priests and those training to be priests. And they were the ones who had a monopoly on all of the literary production. All of this literary production was written in a language that was very much removed from the language that was spoken every day. So it's the language that we still use in in mass in what we call Badarak, and it's called Karapar, or Classical Armenian. But what we, what we speak now, and what they spoke, what the majority of the people spoke, in the cities and the countryside, was Ashkarapar, or a vernacular, a vernacular Armenian. And as more people were becoming educated, they, and schools were being founded, they realized that they couldn't, couldn't educate children in a language that was completely foreign to them. Right. So slowly but surely, they started to standardize the language. And what we speak now, what we know now as modern Western Armenian, came into form. 
if we jump over to what was then the Russian Empire, a similar trend was happening with the Armenian community there. And that's where the two branches of the Armenian language sprang from. So we have Western Armenian in the Ottoman context and Eastern Armenian in the Russian context. So this is so interesting, too, because it's a it's a transfer of, of accessibility and authority also out of a very elite male domain into a domain where perhaps different kinds of actors can start to access literary production or education, as you mentioned. So I'm curious if there is sort of a heritage or a genealogy of female intellectuals in the Armenian community before this time, um, certainly before the 1890s or even before the 1840s, or if women like Zabal Yasayan are really kind of a pioneering generation of females who are sort of emerging into a public sphere to write um, or to advocate on issues. Absolutely. So she very early on emerged as one of the pioneering women in the Armenian intellectual sphere. Before her, as she discusses in the memoir, there's a woman by the name of Serpri Dusap, who we would probably identify as as the first female, she's definitely the first female novelist. We could consider her the first female intellectual as well. Even though beforehand there were some women who were part of the um, national church narrative, mostly saints, there was a nun here or there in the Armenian Catholic context, but really in the 1890s, in the 1880s and the 1890s, we see female figures emerge who are taking on this, this Armenian patriarchy in society. So that's so interesting because one of the things that remar- that's remarkable about this moment of renaissance, which is happening at the same time in the Arab world, is that it brings with it this kind of explosion of new ideas and writing, not only by women, but also about the question of women and gender and the family. So in the historiography of the Arab world, this is often chalked up to colonialism, right? The logic is that the British and the French are obsessed with the question of women in the East, especially the question of women in Islam, the mm-hmm. idea that the, you know, that the colonial powers bring the idea that women in Islam are oppressed. And then Arab writers have to sort of defend themselves from these allegations. So for me, it's really interesting to see that similar questions about women and the family and education are being raised in the Armenian context, which you know, is not outside of a relationship with Europe, but is not in the same situation of sort of direct colonial control as perhaps a woman writing in Cairo in 1895. Um, so I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about her work on the question of women and gender and family, and then maybe speculate about where these questions come from and what kind of intervention she's making into a larger discourse uh, in sort of late 19th century Istanbul. Sure. Well, she really draws inspiration from Sopridusap, the figure I was I was making reference to before, because in the three novels that she wrote, she addresses these questions of injustice in society, female emancipation, the right of women for inheritance, the rights of women to work, and how it should be accepted that a woman would want to go and make a living on her own and not necessarily be enslaved to a family or enslaved to a husband or in a situation that she doesn't want to want to be in. So these novels were very formative for Yesayan as a young woman growing up. So they were written in 1883, 85, and 86. So she's a young woman reading these. And quite early. I mean, that's very, pretty early, very early in this moment. Even. Definitely, definitely. So she's reading these, she's assimilating the ideas that Dusat puts forth, 
and it's slowly making her way, making its way into her consciousness and really flowing out of her pen from a very, very early age. One of the first stories that she writes, she's 17, year old, 17 years old, and she publishes this short story in a magazine. That's amazing. Isn't it? Even by today's standards, a 17-year-old publishing a short story is, is unbelievable. And you can see that she's very concerned with the woman's role in society, establishing an identity outside of a familial identity as, as a wife and mother, and finding something in life that she could personally grasp onto. So in, this, in the short story, it's music for the protagonist. She finds the violin and has this sort of love affair with the violin. But throughout the whole novel, of, excuse me, throughout the whole short story, you can see that the protagonist is making a choice to veer more towards music than marriage. You know, these issues about work and leaving the home and finding a passion that's outside of the traditional roles of motherhood and child rearing, one, you know, from, from the position of a present day reader, one might call that a feminist project, you know, because in fact that emergence from the home into the sort of public sphere or having a passion outside of the family is, is often uh, associated with, with modern feminism. Right. And yet um, you mentioned in an article that you published in The Arminist last spring uh, that Yasayan rejected this label of feminist. So I'm curious, what do you think the, the feminism means to her that she doesn't want to identify with? And how, how would you characterize her project if it's not a feminist one? It's difficult to say because from our perspective, her work is so clearly feminist, and yet she really does try to distance herself from the term. But I think it's, a, it's the same sort of visceral aversion that some people still have towards the word feminist, where they don't quite understand what it means, and they know that there is a prejudice against the word, that they don't want to be identified with something that is condemned in some circles. So, like you said, she, she distances her, herself pretty far away from the term. But at the same time, it's, it's strange because her father identified himself as a feminist. And he was the one who pushed her from the very beginning to start addressing these terms in, 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 um, in her work. That's Yeah, I wanted to ask you actually about this question of the father figure. Mm -hmm. um, and this is something I've noticed also in many memoirs and autobiographies by by feminists of this period and also later periods or maybe we should say women writers rather than feminists uh in the Arab world is that there's a the father figure often emerges as this kind of you know benign caring reform oriented human being who is a mentor um, and who sort of supports his daughter's quest for education and meanwhile, female figures often emerge in a sort of different way, a little bit more ambivalent. Sometimes they're repudiated, especially mothers. It seems like it's very hard for these women writers to figure out how to characterize a relationship with a mother figure who they often describe as traditional or stuck in the past or you know, not really helpful in the reform agenda. So I'm curious if you see something similar playing out in this memoir. And, and if so, what you make of it? You know, what's, what's going on with the way she describes gendered her gendered relationships in her family it's funny you mention that because it's so clear from reading the memoir that she has a lot of disdain for the female members of her family and even the way she characterizes women in the book isn't in the most positive light 
There's one point in in the book where she's describing a couple of members of her extended family. And she's saying that the men in the family are defenders of the French Revolution's principles. And that the women cling to a traditionalism that is better suited for another time and place. So even from that sentence, we get an idea of of her relationship towards the women in her life. But as we read these different vignettes about a neighbor or an aunt or her mother, who she had a very, very turbulent relationship with, not necessarily because of conflict in values, but because her mother was suffering from a very severe form of depression, which she calls melancholia, which a lot of people called melancholia at the time. But she makes it very clear that it's her father who is the most fundamental influence in her life and the one who shaped her into the person that she is, shaped her mind, shaped her her beliefs, her values, and she really turns to him as this pillar of strength, as um, a source of knowledge. He's the one who, her first, who first taught her to read at age four, and while her mother and her grandmother were telling her to hop off of her dad's lap because she didn't they didn't want her to, to be bothering him. He was the one who welcomed her on the lab and went through the newspaper with her word by word and, and encouraged her to develop this love of reading that really sustains her through her whole life. And in fact, at the end of the memoir, there's this really evocative scene where they meet an old man who is sort of surprised at this really warm mentorship that's happening between father and daughter and remarks on how remark you know how unusual this was um so you know it just strikes me i mean the thought that comes to my mind is that this is replicating some of these larger orientalist discourses about women being backwards even through the work of someone who is herself a woman who's trying to do something new so i'm curious you know given that that there's this sort of ambivalence towards female members of her family and female role models. Um, and yet you said, you know, she had been reading previous women writers and that there was a community of women writers around her. I'm curious how how you would characterize her relationship with those women, um, with a larger community of writers and with, you know, the, the women whose writing had inspired her. Well, she thinks of Serpi Dusap as a, as a fundamental role model, but she dies very early on in 1901 while Yasayan is in, in Paris studying. And because there's so much back and forth for Yasayan between Europe and Constantinople, she really, once she moves to France, develops her own community there of not only Armenian writers who either had fled uh, Sultan Abdul Hamid and was waiting for the constitution to be, to be um, declared, but other uh, expatriates. So there's a Polish feminist writer called Maria Shaliga who's there. And this is in Paris. This is in Paris, yeah. And she befriends a lot of of uh, writers and poets who are at the forefront of French literature at the time. So she identifies herself with that community. And then when she comes back to Constantinople, she had been writing and publishing and sending all of these articles and short stories, nonfiction articles, short stories, even serialized novels in Armenian back to to the periodicals in Constantinople. So even though she was in Europe, she was gaining a lot of of popularity, notoriety, just familiarity with her name. She had that when she returned. So she was automatically welcomed into this inner circle. There were people who 
were resentful that she was there or had a problem with her her writing, her style, the themes that she addressed. But by and large. So she was ushered into, when you say an inner circle, it mentions in the memoir that there's a sort of there's a sort of salon culture that's taking root at yes. this moment and that this is also part of a sort of growing nationalist mm. project. And so those are the circles that you're describing her as being welcome in yes. when she returns. Yes, yes. And even before she left, which is amazing, before she left as a 17, 18 year old, she wasn't participating in these circles, but she was good friends with the woman who ran the salon. So she would sit in the kitchen and she would listen to all of these political figures, these writers who would come and discuss the issues of the day. So they were part of Armenian political parties, revolutionary parties, writers who addressed those themes, editors who would edit newspapers that were affiliated with those political parties. So really this nucleus of intellectual activity, she bore witness to and obviously reaped benefits from from being in those circles. So when she came back to Constantinople after having studied, she was familiar with all of these people and was invited to edit a newspaper and began teaching. So um, maybe, I mean, maybe this is a time to bring gender back into the conversation. Were women, were women common in this world? Was she especially valuable because she was a woman and could speak with authority on women's issues? Or was this really kind of um, a space where gender was not a central concern, rather, you know, maybe commitment to a revolutionary project or um, sort of intellectual reputation is a more important factor? It's difficult to say because very little research has been done on her life at the time. And even even intellectual history about that Armenian community at the time, very little research has been done on it. But from letters that I've, I've seen that she's written to her husband at the time or to other figures, it doesn't really seem like her gender is impeding any work that she's doing. Where we do see gender come into the question is through the topics that she's writing about. So she's very, very committed to, to defending women's rights to education, to employment, to all of these different roles that they're now assuming. She wants to make sure that they have respect within the community and that they're treated properly, not discriminated against. So there's one particular article about uh, women teachers. And we see that she tries to make the case in this Armenian newspaper that women teachers should be treated just as, with as much respect, or if not more respect, than their male counterparts, in part because she's assuming that they're going home and they're, they're caring for elderly parents or, chil- or they have children to support. So it's sort of an early version of the double burden. Of the double burden, yeah, double shift. So, I mean, obviously, one of the major areas where real change is happening in this time, you know, in all kinds of different communities in the Ottoman Empire is in this realm of education. And one thing that the memoir does very well is to give us a sense of her own educational trajectory. So I'm curious if you could just tell us a little bit more about what her education looked like and maybe how typical that was of the time. You know, is this an elite education? Is this sort of a middle class? Is there a middle class that has access to this kind of education? Um, and then, you know, a little bit more about what her, 
you know, what her views on education were, right? Because this is a central issue, you know, should women be educated? Should anybody be educated? And who has the authority to do it? Is it sheikhs? Is it priests? Is it reformed men? Is it other women? That's an excellent question. And her academic trajectory was very much one of a middle-class girl. So within the Ottoman context, the Ottoman Armenian community, there are a variety of tiers, understandably. As in many communities. As in many communities, there are a variety of tiers. The top tier would be the, the children that were sent to the French schools or the American school. And then the middle class, which is tough to say if Yasin was middle class because her father bopped around. We also learned that he was in and out of debt and all kinds of things. So these he are obviously the most, specific. He wasn't the most upstanding gentleman, but he did scrape together money to send both of his children to school. And both Yesai, both Zabel and her, her sister Mathilde were sent to the Armenian school. So she first started, and this was a, a subject of contention within the family because she lived like a lot of families with her extended family. So she had a handful of aunts and uncles, her mother and father were obviously there, and they all had different ideas about where to send the two children. What were the other alternatives? There was the Mesburian school, which was a, an Armenian school where most of the elite girls were sent. There was a French school. We, um, we hear about a Greek school, which was a secondary school that she could have gone to if she hadn't gone to France. And then there was the Armenian school, and that's where she ends up after having spent a year or two in a religious, an informal sort of religious school, which was um, mixed. It had both boys and girls there up until the age of 14. And they learned to, to read in Armenian, which she had already learned at home, but a lot of children hadn't. They learned to recite passages from the Bible and from the um, Book of Lamentations, which is a, an, a religious text in the Armenian context. But her father wasn't very um, wasn't very interested in having his daughter only receive a religious education, so he sent her to the neighborhood school, which was tied to the church. But was there a sense at the time that it was better for Armenian children or even particularly Armenian girls to go to an Armenian school as opposed to to a sort of missionary school or a foreign school or you know a school belonging to another community? A lot of when we're talking about sending them to a French or an American school there is an assumption that they would be of a certain class and they would have the money to send their children to an American or a French school. And even though she doesn't address it in the book, I would assume that her father wasn't wealthy enough to send the two girls there. Right, right. But she learns French well enough from the Armenian school to enable her to, to go to France and study, and, and she's perfectly fluent in the language by 16, 17 years old. right. And so then she emerges from this this sort of exceptional and even peripatetic educa educational trajectory into a life of writing about the question of education and the question of gender. So I'm curious, you know, we, we've heard that she believes that women should have the right to go out and work and that female teachers should be respected. Um, are there other major tenets of her sort of educational philosophy or intervention that you would want to highlight or is that really kind of her major her ma the major point she's trying to make it's a major point she's trying to make and her engagement with education ends by 1909 interesting so she's it's a very very short period of time 
between when she returns from Paris, when she returns from Paris for the first time in, in 1902 and 1909. Because after 1909, she's dealing very closely for the years up until the genocide with the massacres of, of Adana in 1909. So she kind of leaves behind all of these more activist interests, including education. Interesting. And when does she, when does her literary production begin? I mean, is she writing novels as well in this, you know, during this entire period? She is, she is. And she's publishing them mostly in serialized form in newspapers in Constantinople and Smyrna. So this is really interesting. It brings us to this question of genre, which always comes up for me when I read something, you know, a memoir, an autobiography. Um, And I know in the in the tradition of Arabic literature and letters, memoir or autobiography is kind of a new genre at this moment of the early 20th century. This is not something that's really been done before. This sort of self-conscious production of a narrative about one's childhood, as if this will tell us something about the identity or the politics or the future that someone comes to inhabit is kind of a new thing. Um, so I'm curious, you know, what what you make of this genre of memoir, of this particular memoir, are other Armenians writing similar texts? And, and what's going on in the way that people are thinking about the self at this moment that is causing them to go back into their childhoods to pull out some kind of coherent narrative about how they got where they are? Sure, that's a, an excellent question because there are a lot of Armenians in the moment when she's writing the, the autobiography that are doing the same thing. And many of them were Armenians who had fled the Ottoman Empire and ended up in the Soviet Republic of Armenia. And that's where she was when she wrote the memoir. It was published in 1935 and she wrote it over the course of two years, from 1933 to 1935, after she had settled permanently in Armenia. What she was trying to do is reconstruct a point in time that would never again be seen. Because at this point, Asoturk had taken over. He had established the Turkish Republic. Many of the Armenians, the majority of the, Ar- the Armenians, were either killed or had fled into the right. diaspora. There's no return to Constantinople of 1900 at no, this moment. right? not at all. So there's sort of a tragic element to it almost. Absolutely. And what's very, very clear from the book is that she was hopelessly in love with the city. She saw it as her own, and she mourned the loss of it. That very, very clearly comes out. There are some beautiful evocations of what this life was like. Almost, I'm hesitant to use the word romanticized, because I know that she herself, you know, pushed against a romanticism in literature, but there is something of that here. Um, so it's interesting that, you know, this is you see this as sort of a reconstructive moment or even a, even like a memorial, right, to to something that had that had gone. I don't want to say it, it was political in motivation, but she was really, from the way I see it, trying to assert that the Armenians did belong to the city at one time. Even if they aren't a major player in 1935, they did contribute to the city. They did live in it. So she's staking a historical claim, you know, that there was this moment and we were part of it and now it's gone. Um, and, and you mentioned elsewhere, I think, that that you're also, you know, this is part of how she sees the future of Armenian art, that there's something almost nostalgic about this because, you know, for her, Constantinople is really the sort of golden age or the, the golden location of Armenian artistic production. 
Um, and yet you mentioned that she's, you know, she's in exile in the Sov- in Soviet Armenia, right, with all these other intellectuals who are engaging in similar projects, you know, memoirs or other kinds of literary writing. So maybe you can just give us a sense of, of where she ends up, right? I mean, this sort of, this new scene that's taking place in exile or sure. in diaspora. Sure. She has a very interesting story after 1915. So she was was targeted to be on the the blacklist on April 24th, but had evaded arrest in a very interesting way. She actually hid in in a hospital in Constantinople for for a few months before. And she is on that list, but she wasn't home when they came to to arrest her. This is why it's good for women to be out of the home. Yeah, really. She was at a friend's house. And her family got word to her at the friend's house that that she was being... um, she was being hunted. So she hid in the hospital. And after a few months, she tried to cross the, the Bulgarian border. And she disguised herself as a, as a Greek seamstress and made up a whole story that she was going to Bulgaria to make a, a wedding dress for a wealthy Bulgarian woman and some, somehow managed to, to cross the border into Bulgaria, stays there for a bit, and then makes her way up through Ukraine, down through Georgia and to Soviet Armenia. And this is 1917, 1918. And there she stays for a while and she collects the, the narratives of, of genocide survivors who had fled into what was then the independent Republic of Armenia or what used to be the Russian Empire. She stays there and then makes her way down through Persia, Egypt, up through up through Egypt, across the Mediterranean to France, where she, she settles for about 10 years. And it's there where we see her politics shift. After the foundation of the, the Soviet Union, she begins to get the sense that the only way Armenian art and literature is going to survive is with the help of the Soviet Republic. Not necessarily monetary help, but just having... Armenians centralized in one location is the only way for art to thrive. She has no hope, very, very little hope, that anything miraculous will take place in the diaspora. She's very disillusioned with the community that she sees in France, in Paris, even though there's a lot of exciting activity. Right, and it had been so central to her own formation, which is interesting. Absolutely. And even as we get later into the 1920s and the 1930s, there's a whole other new generation that had fled the genocide and had established itself in Paris with the purpose of reviving Armenian literature and making Western Armenian a literary language and fusing it with new life. So even though we do see these very exciting trends and these these intellectual currents, she is of another generation and doesn't have much faith in these these new guys who who might not be um, carrying out the vision that she had for herself. So what happens is that she becomes so disillusioned with what she sees that she moves for good to Soviet Armenia in 1933 mm. after having spent a good five years as a spokesperson, an unofficial spokesperson mm. of the Soviet Republic mm. in the diaspora. So she edits a French-Armenian journal, which is filled with Soviet propaganda. She writes a travelogue, which is widely recognized as a piece of propaganda to, to bring to to encourage Armenians in the diaspora to 
as they say, repatriate yeah. to the Soviet Republic. I mean, this, this makes this memoir even more nostalgic in a way, you know, as she sort of ends her life in this, you know, attempt to perhaps reproduce or recreate what really can't be recreated, right? This very vibrant Armenian community that existed in Constantinople at the turn of the century that then, of course, is gone. Um, so this is, you know, this sort of imbues this memoir with an even deeper sense of nostalgia for contemporary readers. Definitely. And it was intended to be the first in a, in a three-part volume. What happens after it's published is that she's arrested and she becomes one of the victims of the Stalinist purges. So unfortunately, we don't have any of those manuscripts that that she had begun that she had planned. That right. she had planned. So in some ways this is a life a life cut short, but but one that we now have, you know, some really interesting and wonderful texts uh, to that can help us think about this period more broadly, I think. So we want to thank you for coming on the podcast today um, and sharing with us your work and your knowledge of this figure, Zabad Yasayan. And she really sounds like a remarkable human being uh, and woman. And she may be particularly interesting for our Ottomanist and Arabist listeners who may be familiar with female intellectuals who were writing in Turkish and in Arabic in the late 19th century. Um, but hearing about how these issues are taken up in the Armenian context, in the Armenian community, gives us an opportunity, I think, to think more broadly and comparatively about this larger moment, um, which is, of course, not just an Ottoman or an Armenian moment, but also an English moment and a French moment and a Chinese moment. You know, mm -hmm. people all over the world are really interested in and obsessed with these questions about women and reform and the family that she's taking up. So uh, we want to really thank you for being here with us today. And for those who want to find out more, you can obviously check out this newly published translation of The Gardens of Silihdar uh, by our guest Jennifer Manukian. Uh, and it's published by the Armenian International Women's Association and came out this year, 2014. Um, and we will also post a bibliography on the website, www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where you can also leave your comments and questions. So that's all for this episode. And until next time, take care.